Hi there, and welcome to the Man in the Van podcast, your regular audio drive time companion, where our main aim is education through a conversation. Through our conversations, delve deep into all things related to the tradesperson contracting community, from news to education to industry happenings, helping you do better business while building a better and improved South African tradesmen and women contracting community. Thanks for tuning in. Let's start the conversation. Warm welcome to our audience. My name is Willem Klopper. I am your host, and this episode is part one of a conversation in which we will discuss some of the most commonly made mistakes in plumbing work, as well as some of the most common non-compliances found by auditors. Now, the objective of this conversation is to create greater awareness of these common fails with the hope that these mistakes and non-compliances will significantly be reduced or be alleviated altogether. Now, with me in studio, I have my three guests, Miss Lorraine Moy, Mr. Steve Brown, and Mr. Mahen Suprasad. Just before we give our guests the opportunity to introduce themselves, let's hit the brakes. I'd like to remind our audience that this episode is proudly brought to you by Articulated Plumber. Just before I fire away with all the other questions that I have, I want to ask each of our guests uh, just to very briefly introduce themselves to you. Steve, would you mind to just very briefly introduce yourself to the audience? Hi, my name is Steve Brown, uh, Operations Manager of the Institute of Plumbing South Africa, and I head up the auditing uh, part and parcel of my portfolio is to uh, manage, assist and guide in terms of the compliance auditors on a national basis. Right. So, so Steve, I want to ask you, uh, our discussion today is regarding the most commonly made mistakes by plumbers or the most commonly found uh, fails uh, that are found by auditors. Where did this uh, idea for this discussion or this conversation uh, originate from? Uh, Willem, it, it, it came about with regards to uh, our IOPSA Free State uh, region, um, where there was a couple of challenges being experienced by the plumbers and by the auditors. So what we then decided to do is to put a plumber's evening together. And obviously the topic was to engage with the compliance auditors in the free state. So just to give an idea, we've got some guys in Bethlehem. Uh, we've got uh, Chapman, Bethlehem. We've got uh, Bloemfontein. And we've also got up in the sort of Northern Cape, Kimberley area. So what we did was we approached them uh, and requested from them common sort of areas of, of uh, failures or non-compliance that they uh, come across on a, on a sort of daily basis. We received that and then based on the information that was given, I, I then went sort of national and engaged with the other auditors, bearing in mind that we have a total of I think 42 or 43 auditors right throughout the country. And we saw a similar pattern coming together from uh, from the regions, and a lot of these items that had been raised in the free state were actually common to all regions. So, uh, therefore, putting this together um, as a, uh, a podcast, we've also looked at it from a, a webinar point of view and also some of the training that we're putting together. Uh, and, again, this doesn't sort of um, cover all, but these are, are certainly common ones that, that were basically brought up by most of the compliance auditors in the region. So that's where we are today. Uh, we've got the info and um, we'll deliver in terms of, of what these common problems are. And I think that for those in attendance and listen, 
uh, I think they're going to get a, a, a very good idea in terms of, of these things. Uh, again, with each one of these where you have to go back and either do a refix or uh, issue a re-non-compliance or create issues, it costs money. So I think the whole thing for us at the moment is to, to go through these. Uh, as I say, this list might change next week. Uh, we would hope so because the individuals have now learned. But I think it's uh, just to get it out there. Um, so that individuals can start looking at these items and say, hey, you know, I need to up my game or understand the principles of exactly what's required when the compliance auditor conducts his audit. So that's where we are with that. I think it's a very good idea, Stephen. I think the fact that, um, you, you know, you're having this discussion um, uh, certainly will share with the, with the audience out there that, uh, you know, there are certain uh, mistakes that are repetitively made by the plumbers out there and and in a conversation like this and a discussion like this will certainly uh you know make them sort of more focused they on or more aware they of and, and and to sort of try and prevent that yeah i think we see it as upskilling villain i think that you know as i say that the compliance auditors out there you know he's, he's got his instructions that he has to follow uh, there's very set procedures in terms of how he needs to conduct that audit if we're talking particularly today's one in terms of of geezers um, and, and, and he has to do that. And I think the, the, the purpose is, one, to communicate to, to the installer and the plumber in terms of the requirements of the standards. Um, but it, it does become a bit frustrating when, uh, you know, you audit the same person they keep doing the same thing, you know. Um, so, yeah, that does become a challenge. So we're hoping uh, we learn from all of these audits, and, and, and through this it becomes a learning curve for us to be able to, uh, put this type of uh, conversation out there um, for everybody to benefit. And, you know, we would sincerely hope that by applying these principles that we're talking about today is that they'll be reduced and therefore, um, you know, the refixes are reduced and, and the plumber uh, doesn't carry that cost because he's just invested a bit of time in terms of listening to what it is that we're talking about today. Certainly is a win-win situation for everybody in that regard then. Yes, most definitely. So I'm looking at a list of, of uh, aspects that have been compiled, and, and one of the first aspects that pop out to me is pipe support or piping support. Um, can you tell me a little bit more, Lorraine, if you don't mind, um, about the commonly made mistakes or the commonly fails or the common fails uh, when it comes to the way in which pipes are supported in the, and anchored um, you know, what does the stands the sand standards say about that and, and what are the sort of requirements there for? Um, thank you, Willem. Um, I've been lucky to audit in two different regions. So I used to audit in East London and now I audit in Pretoria. And I can the pipe supports is a universal problem. A lot of the time, you know, the guys come into the it's replacements. So the the these pipe supports that are in this in the ceiling or the pipes not supported correctly have been there since the last installation, and they and they think to themselves just because they, the pipes are sitting with the, the nails are hooked over, it's done. They've done their job, and you know the sands standards are very clear. Ten to five four five point five states that connecting pipes shall be firmly anchored to prevent water hammer and dislodging of joints, and a lot of the guys don't understand the consequences of this, and um, the, to them it's that the pipes are sitting there, the water's going through the pipes, it's all good. And what happens is that, and what happened to a plumber in East London actually was because of not informing the client about this, they, the, they pipes dislodged, there was a water hammer, which means that there's air in the, in the pipes and the, the pipes are moving. So, you know, you have like a sound that goes, da 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 in your ceiling, that's water hammer. 
Best water hammer. So I'm not. I'm not a plumber. So <laughs> to me, that's new. I, I I always wanted to know what that is. I, I thought that was machine gun fire, but now I know. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's your pipes. <laughs> and when I explain it to a client, when I do an audit, and I go, you hear that? And they're like, yes, I hear. And I'm thinking, is it a helicopter? What's going on? It's your pipes. It's water hammer. And what happens that over time, because a lot of these pipes have been sitting in the roof for X amount of years, they've been soldered. That water hammer pipes the, the fitting from the pipe dislodges, and then you got. Your, your roof floods and that's what happened to a guy and what ended up happening was that he had to claim for insurance about 150,000 rand simply because he didn't inform the client before that, that ma'am you've got your pipes not secured correctly she had had nails throughout the whole roof and in some areas they weren't it was just the pipes were just laying there and there was polycarp pipe in the roof it was a, it was a mess really and he didn't inform the client that you know these pipes are not secured properly and this could be the consequence of that and if he had done that then he wouldn't have had to. He wouldn't have had to claim a hundred and fifty thousand rand from his insurer, and that's the main thing that we, you know, that's the main thing that guys need to understand that pipes need to be supported. Uh, there's different sizing. Obviously, there's different measurements for every for every type of pipe that you need to support. But the fact of the matter is that if you don't support those pipes, there are consequences to that. And also, not informing your client when you get there um, that, ma'am, this is the situation that you need to rectify it. It tends to th- that those that's the extreme consequences of that. Lorraine, so, so you mentioned that uh, the, the, the plumber didn't inform the customer or the, the consumer of what he saw in the roof, that some of these pipes weren't even anchored at all. They were just lying around. So that the, that specific uh, installation was done by a previous plumber, and he got there, and he saw this non-compliance, but he did not uh, you know, report on it. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, and that's what happens is that, and I usually tell the guys, you know, when you get into a roof, do a quick audit of your surroundings. Just check what the non-compliance are. You, you can see them, that this is this and this and this. And I think a lot of guys take the, the fact that the pipes are secured by the nails, that it's they've, they've done, the, the previous person has done their job, where a nail is not supposed to secure a pipe. That's not what a nail is used for. And, and also that causes, because it's got dissimilar metals. You've got copper, and you've got whatever metal that they've used to make the, the to make the the speaker. Should I put it that way? <laughs> the Afrikaan in me is coming out. Uh, the nail, and then what happens? That over time, you've got this this um, this this action that happens, and these pipes are th- there's problems, and you get like, you, you might get a, a burst in the pipe because of this dissimilar dissimilar metals. And a lot of the plumbers don't take cognizance of that. They think to themselves the speakers are in. I'm happy. I'm gone. The pipes are secured, and they really and this pipe support is nine probably. From the orders that I do, uh, nine out of ten, I'll find this pipe support. It's either not listed on a non-compliance, or it's just something that's there, constant, or they have done it as well once they've done the 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 installation. That they get there and they see a non-compliance done by a previous plumber's work, but but they themselves can also then you know not comply. Yes, Lorraine, can you yes. give me just one example of of how can pipes then be uh, correctly secured or correctly anchored, for that matter. Just what, what, what in terms of what do they use? What, how, how is it done? Just, just one brief, very brief example. What would it? One brief. <laughs> <laughs> Hold the <it> bat. <laughs> Steve, am I right? Am I wrong here? <laughs> oh my goodness! That um, is such an easy way in which to answer that question. Yeah, I <laughs> so I think that what uh, Lorraine was saying there. If you go up into to Sands one hundred two five two point one, and it gets to the specifics in terms of how a pipe is supported. So there are uh, tables there, 
in terms of what the manufacturer requires for their specific product. So, for example, your composite pipes would obviously be, uh, you know, I think the standard is 300 millimeters in terms of centers, in terms of uh, supports, in terms of being horizontal. And then obviously pipework that is vertical, um, depending on the type of material. But the first thing is to go back to what the manufacturer states and what the standards require. And I think that that's what we find all too often working in a roof space where, um, yes, you know, these are between two trusses and, and how do you get that supported? But we have seen plumbers that have gone that extra mile, communicated to the consumer in terms of maybe putting additional you know, timber supports in, uh, and then be able to fix the pipework in the appropriate manner. So I think, you know, we could go and explain, you know, what, what, what. So again, the, the support brackets must be approved. Uh, they must be in line with the product that's been utilized and, and supported in terms of the correct centers. And, and that is one of our most common ones. And then as Lorraine was saying, when you're getting up into the roof space, um, yes, you remember your certificate is stating that the work that you've done is, has been done correctly but also the standard requires you to advise the homeowner in writing of any pre-existing uh, 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 non-compliance. And I think that's where they fall down, and we'll touch on that a little bit later on. But I think the key thing for us is that that, that communication between plumber and, 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 and client, and as Lorraine says, you know, that homeowner has been living with that tuck, 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 as Lorraine explains it, um, you know, for the last umpteen years, and just somebody with a little bit of knowledge coming up there saying, well, we could actually get rid of that. And it's because of loose piping in the roof. And, and these are the risks. So, yes, um, there's certainly appropriate materials and, and making sure that they're done in the correct manner. And we're not talking about pieces of wire and nails and, and, and various things, plastic bags, you won't believe. Cable ties. Uh, cable ties. You know, we, we've had a multitude of sins oh. that are utilized bricks. Um, oh, you name it, whatever you can find up there, um, the guys will try and secure it, um, which is which is unacceptable in terms of the standards. They are professional and they should be doing it correctly. Steve, I'm actually looking at, at, at two examples um, of, of photographs that were taken by auditors um, that are added to this list of, of commonly made mistakes. Um, one of the pipes are lying on top of a bracket uh, into which it could just perfectly clip into if the bracket was just turned the correct way so instead of the instead of the pipe being placed into the clip it is lying on top of the clip yeah and, and i think you can clearly see Willem, as a as a non-plumber although we are educating you in 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 very 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 good ways but there again you know you've got to look at it and say you know is that just poor laziness is it just i don't care you know, what is that attitude? The first bit of movement in terms of that pipe or bit of a water hammer or a spike, it's going to drop and, and it's going to put stress on the joints. And I think that's the key thing that we're looking at is the stress that's applied to the joints. That's for the reason why you actually have the pipe supports. I mean, you know, it is what it is and you need to do it. But that to me was just plain laziness as you see. Absolutely. And then I see another photograph here, another example of where a, a, a nail was hammered into, you know, the bottom of just below the pipe, and then it was bent around the pipe to serve as a clip. Yeah. And, and the thing is, you know, Willem, I've done it, you know, uh, we're not very good. We're not carpenters, we're plumbers. So, you know, and, and inevitably <laughs> when you hit the nail, it's, it's one hit on the head and one on your finger and the next one hits the pipe. But it does. We've actually seen it where the nail, you know, because they bend it over 
actually disfigures the pipe or bends the pipe depending on what yeah. it is. So you actually affect the, the, the internal bore of the pipe, the strength of the pipe and everything else. And then as Lorraine said, the similar materials, movement, etc., cetera, uh, can produce pinholes and, 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 and create a failure on the actual pipe itself. So certainly uh, not the correct way. And it is nowhere mentioned at any standard that uh, – that is how uh, adequately supported pipes should be utilized. And just before we continue the conversation, it's time to hit the brakes again. Don't forget to download the all-new and improved App Plumber from the Google Play Store. All your plumbing solutions are just a click away, exclusively for Android users. Welcome back. Now to continue our discussion, I would like to ask the following question. Mahin, one of the other... Uh, uh, aspects or areas of, of mistakes that are made, common mistakes that are made that we're looking at here is the 90 degree bends on safety valve uh, discharge pipes. Uh, would you care to share a little bit more or elaborate a little bit more on the on the type of mistakes that, that plumbers make in that regard or in that area? Sure, thank you William, for that. I think William, what the guys need to understand is that we are mandated to, to audit based on the standards. And as per sense, 102.54.5.2 clearly states that all bends on discharge shall be a maximum of 45 degrees. I mean, if you're going to go out there and you're going to find anything else, it's going to be a fail. Uh, 90 degree bends being used is quite, it's quite common. And I think the TP discharge pipe being one of the more, or more or I would say, uh, affecting the safety in terms of uh, that gears operating effectively should the thermostat fail, uh, that 90-degree bend is, 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 is being scientifically tested. The reason the standard asks for the 45, I think, is more science than plumbing in terms of why a 45-degree bend should be used. So it's commonly found. It's all, and it's, it's not something that we, we need to, I think, um, try and in all aspects uh, change. We can't. There are certain rational design issues. There are geysers that are fitted in cupboards or in the center floor of a building. Uh, we find that, it, that it's being fitted there, but as Steve earlier on said, and we'll discuss it later on as well, is that non-compliant section. So in terms of a 90-degree bend being fitted to a, why, to a geyser TP valve outlet, why would you fail? I mean, well, the reason for fail is because it doesn't compare to the standard number one. And the second thing, I mean, we will, we will be questioned, and someone might say, hey, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. It's, how would he know if he's not going to be put into a situation where there's absolutely nothing I can do with regard to a 90-degree bend being fitted? Hence, I think our non-compliance section adequately covers that in terms of where if it cannot be and you cannot make a plan to make it comply, then that non-compliance section of the, of, the, of the COC is where the plumber would, would use to, to be able to cover it for it not to be a fail. I mean, I'm sure as auditors, when we go out there and we find that a 90-degree bend has been used and a bit of logic will prevail there in terms of the way the plumber could not do anything better than what's there. And it had to leave it in that manner for it to operate, at least operate, but not effectively, but operate. But bringing it to the owner's attention immediately via the non-compliance actually changes that fail into a pass with a caution, of course, uh, advising and making sure that the owner is aware of the risk of what's being posed, then the plumber simply will, will, or the auditor will have to just, we don't have much of a choice but to not make it a fail in terms of uh, of it being uh, uh, being used because there is no other way out. Uh, I think 
also uh, uh, in terms of the 45 degree bends, I mean, it's been mandated since, oh, sorry, it's been in the standard since 2012. And it's not like something that's that's new where we, we you know, all, I mean, if you read the standards, it's something that's always been there. And amended in 2012 means that our guys should be, uh, I would say, as I said earlier, we audit based on the standards. And I think maybe educating yourself more on the standards and understanding why a 90-degree bench shouldn't be used would be something that I would uh, I would actually stress in terms of plumbers being educating themselves as to why. Maybe then they'll understand why they need to either change or do it correctly or actually take that time to notify the client of that non-compliance. But Mahin, so, so my next question would have been, you know, is there a risk uh, associated with not, you know, using a 45-degree bend and, and rather using a 90-degree bend? Yes, in certain instances it cannot be helped. You know, you mentioned that, you, you touched on that subject. But but uh, is there a risk associated to not complying, other than 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 you know having an audit finding in your on your may, you you know you may get an audit finding on your work done, but I mean for the consumer is there a risk? Definitely, William. Uh, uh, I mean, if we in in our in our past we've had many videos, pictures, and stuff showing what happens when a TP valve is one blocked or. I, I mean, when, when, what happens, let me just, just explain what happens or why the TP valve is there in the first place in terms of, of your of, of a safety aspect. When your thermostat fails, you have an element that's continuously heating that geyser up and the only means of escaping that uh, overpressure that's forming that geyser is that TP valve. And the reason why I would say it's dangerous is because, Tesla said earlier, it's something that's more science than plumbing. Uh, when that water starts to superheat inside that geyser, it needs to escape. And when it escapes and it's coming out of that TV valve overflow, it's actually with no atmosphere, it's now steam. And, and like it's actually superheated water, water yeah, which, 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 is, which is very dangerous if it's not able to leave that geyser at the, at, at the required rate. And, and, I mean, from a 45-degree bend, a 90-degree bend, I mean, logic tells you that the steam will leave that, that the superheated water will leave that geyser much easier or more efficiently than a 90-degree bend causing the restriction that, that, it, that it would. And a 45-degree bend will make that steam or superheated water leave the geyser much, much quicker, causing less strain or damage inside the, inside the building. I mean, just to say, if that 90-degree bend was fitted there, and if that steam or superheated water did not leave that geyser uh, at the rate it's supposed to, we're having a situation where the geyser can explode in that ceiling, causing a lot more damage and it would if it was a 45-degree bend. You know, I think that, you know, Hammond Strauss did a, a presentation to the compliance auditors, and I think he actually put it out to uh, to the plumbers in one of our tech talks. And it, it was actually, you know, excuse the, the pun, but it was actually mind-blowing to actually see the amount of energy. And I think that's what we don't understand, is the, the, the amount of energy that can be built up in, in an actual geyser uh, when it's put under stress. And we, we always have that question from the plumber, you know, pre-2012, an anti-degree bend was accessible or was, uh, uh, um, you know, accepted. But, um, you know, pre-2012, it's there. And it's like Mahin says, it's more science than it is plumbing. Uh, there's some very clever people with white suits that do all these major wonderful calculations. And it's not to frustrate us, but it's to just make systems better. And I think that that's where it really boils down to is is for us to understand that uh, it's these type of things are not taken lightly. Uh, we've seen the consequences of uh, 
you know, installations where they've been done incorrectly. And the TP, you know, falls uh, into our previous question with regards to being supported because that amount of energy coming through that pipe and it not being supported, the, the resultant damage and to person and property is escalated because it hasn't been supported correctly. Absolutely. Steve, Tell me quickly, when it comes to, uh, we're speaking of, of, of the standards and, and, you know, the reasons for for the requirements of the standards being implemented. Um, one of the one of the other aspects that I'm looking at here on the list um, is, is shutter valves and that they're being placed uh, or provided between PRVs and geysers. Um, can you can you perhaps elaborate on that on the mistakes that plumbers make in that regard when it comes to shutter valves being uh, provided between PRVs and geysers? Yeah, so this has been one that that comes up commonly, and I, and I think it, it it goes back to sometimes when the the plumber tries to balance the system, as we know, to balance the system meaning to to make sure that the uh, the hot and cold water operate at the same pressure. Um, they would possibly relocate the pressure control valve to a position that balances the system, but then not taking into consideration that there are valves and isolating valves, and it, it's very clear in terms of SANS 102.54.5.6.3, where it states that there'll be no isolating valve or a valve that will restrict it between the pressure control valve and the inlet of the geyser. So we sometimes find uh, outside on the wall, for example, there'll be a one-way valve there, um, in some instances, we found non-return valves installed, which would basically uh, stop the geyser from draining or anti-siphoning. Um, we have additional valves installed. So there's a multitude of valves that can be installed be- be- between there that are actually non-compliant in terms of the standard. And from a manufacturer's point of view, uh, and again, some relative interpretations of what's there, is that um, with regards to that, a valve installed between the pressure control valve, if it has a expansion relief incorporated in it, would mean that it would restrict the expansion in the geyser. Expansion meaning the hot water that, uh, sorry, the cold water in the cylinder, it obviously heats up, it expands, it becomes a, a great in terms of, of, the, of the volume inside the tank and therefore it needs to expand. And some geysers, depending on usage, can be between two to six liters of water a day in terms of expanding. And without a free flow of, of, of uh, uh, with no restriction, um, it puts stress on the cylinder. And then obviously, uh, in the event of the cylinder failing, um, the geyser manufacturer is quite within their rights to, to void the warranty. So it, it does become a challenge in terms of the, uh, the installer, uh, sometimes doing the right thing, but then creating additional problem. But there are ways in which to, to resolve that. So in the event that there is a valve that's going to restrict or a non-return valve or a one-way valve between it, um, then you can position an additional expansion relief at the geyser, which would then take up the expansion from within the tank, discharge it in a safe and appropriate manner uh, without taking away from the warranty. Um, but again, it's up to the plumber to just make sure that when you are going to now try and balance the system or position the valve in such a place, is just to trace the line back from where you're going to be installing the PRV uh, and then trace that path back to the inlet of the geyser to ensure that um, you're not going to affect the warranty or, for that matter, fail uh, uh, an audit uh, and then possibly have to carry the the costs in terms of either a failed geyser or a uh, a warranty, etc. So it's, it's just to be vigilant in terms of that. 
And uh, where do these valves fit? They're everywhere. We found them behind bushes and, you know, in hidden places. And uh, sometimes I think we miss it, but the individual coming to do the, uh, the warranty call uh, will go out and go and make sure because it's part and parcel of, of, of their requirements is to go and make sure that that installation complies to, to 102.54 in its entirety in terms of that warranty being in position. Um, we do have some manufacturers that are quite lenient that if you use a lever valve or a two-way valve between the pressure control valve and the inlet of the geyser, that uh, they would uphold their warranty. But that does not apply to all geyser manufacturers, and that's also another issue that we come up with where one makes one statement and it's happy with it. So the standard, we, we plumb to the standard. It, what the standard says is what is required to be installed, and that is no valves between the pressure control valve and the inlet of the geyser. I think the, the iteration should be on the fact that it's called a, a pressure relief or pressure release valve or a pressure control valve mm -hmm. for a reason, um, and it's there to control... Yeah. Pressure and pressure is a risk. You know, it can build up and it can right. cause explosion. And uh, there should preferably not be any restriction between that and the geyser itself. Hundred percent. And I think that that's, as I say, one of those things. It does become a challenge. You know, when you go to the client and you, you know, you got to communicate with them. But there's enough information out there. You know, Google is your friend. You know, you, you, there's enough information that both PIRB and IOPS have put together to be able to substantiate. You know, to the client, the reasons and risks, um, you know, in terms of doing that. And, and if they decide, you know, some of these valves are outside on the wall, it's painted, whatever. So the additional cost of putting the expansion relief valve up in the roof space um, is minimal, you know, in terms of what it would actually cost if uh, the geyser failed and the plumber hadn't addressed it. So these are key critical items that, um, you know, the plumber needs to be very vigilant in terms of, of, of what's actually up there. Last week I had one where there was a non-return valve installed before or the plumber actually installed it and now they're sitting at a cost of about 8,000 Rand and the, the manufacturer is quite adamant that uh, the standards are clear, no, specifically with a non-return valve or any other valve and they will not uphold the warranty. Now, you know, the plumber feels that he's been hard done by because, uh, you know, he said, well, this has just been applied recently. My hands just said, you know, earlier that it comes up, you know, these standards have been around for, for forever. And we should know that. Um, but yeah, now there's a, a bun fight. That, that plumber, because of a valve that's maybe, what, maybe 200 bucks or something, he's put that in, um, thinking he solved the problem. But he's actually created a problem for himself that could cost him up to five, 6,000 bucks. So an expensive mistake. And just before we continue the conversation, it's time to hit the brakes again. Plumber training has never been easier with articulated plumber courses. Enroll now to upskill yourself at your own pace and earn CPD points. Our informative and easy-to-follow courses can be found on iopsatraining.co.za. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Articulated Plumber. Lorraine, when it comes to uh, the fall on, on the geyser tray discharge pipe and, and the insufficiency of the fall on the geyser tray dis discharge pipe, uh, what does the standard say about that and what what kind of commonly made mistakes or commonly found fails uh, are there in that aspect or that regard? Um, in terms of SANS 254, um, B2.1, installation of drip trays, um, it states that, uh, section B states, it shall be sloped to the outlet end and rigidly maintained in a position given in above A. The outlet should be connected to a corresponding drain pipe which shall slope away from the tray and discharge the outside of the building in a visible position. 
and um, you know, obviously, you know, someone reads that and they think to themselves, they don't really take the consequences in, in, into effect of what what will happen if that this tray does not slope away. Because mind away, uh, mind you, that all the components are supposed to um, be fitted over the geezer tray. So that's the vacuum breakers, all of that. And so what happens is that if one of those items fails, because the geezer tray is there to, you know, catch the water, let me put it that way, and the drain and the and the drain pipe is to, you know, remove the water from the drip from the drip tray. So now, if your tray is not sloped, your tray is sitting level, and that component fails and fails in a very bad way, like horribly, and this this water is just piling up and getting into the into the tray, and there's no way for it to remove itself, um, it's going to flood the ceiling. And that causes damage. I mean, you got, in some houses, you find that the, the electrics are not in conduit pipes. You've got obviously the ceiling itself. Um, if uh, what the, the gay the, the the timber that the the tray is positioned on top of also let's say has been there for yonkers and it's rotted away, um, you got a the, the extreme version is that it could fall through the ceiling, because mind you, it might be that this is a holiday house this is happening in, and that's the thing that you know we we're trying to get to the plumbers is that. You know, treat the customer how you'd like to be treated, because you would want somebody to make sure that all the safety aspects of your installation are, you know, are done correctly. You would want that if your if your geezer fails and you are your holiday home or whatever it is, the water can just discharge itself without causing damage to your to your property. Um, and that is it's it's a common thing with the guys. They're not they they don't take that into effect in in their minds. I come in, I'm doing I'm doing a like for like as they say. I'm taking out a cylinder, I'm putting in a new cylinder. But the fact of the matter is that you are the professional. The client doesn't know any better. The client assumes that you, as the professional plumber, who's, a, who's issuing me a certificate of compliance, knows what you're doing. You're putting my best interests at heart first. Um, Steve, do you want to elaborate on Mahin on anything that I've said? Yeah, I think, I think also, Lorraine, is, you know, we take it, you know, yes, that the user is you know, positioned in the ceiling or in a cupboard or whatever. But, you know, if it hasn't been positioned correctly, it's not only that, but it's, it's, it's you know, the consequential, that's the, the damage that comes through to that. You know, it's coming through skirting boards. I've seen them leak into distribution boards, trip the electrics. I've seen uh, lots of damage done to, to the actual property. So, again, that becomes that. And then we go back to our right, our first one. It's very, it's, it's great to really have the tray positioned correctly, but for you, as you've said, it must be down and out, directly out with sufficient fall. Um, but if that uh, waste pipe or the discharge pipe from the tray is not supported correctly and uh, you've got that amount of volume of water going through it, put stress on the joint and then you're back to square one again. So so all of these things actually work that, you know, A, tray slope, B, pipe supported, C, correct size piping. Um, you know, if all of that is done, you know, then you've really minimized the risk. But it's all very well to put the tray in with a bit of a slope, but then your discharge pipe from your uh, your tray to the external or the outside of the building, if that's not supported, we've seen them bow. We've seen it, you know, sometimes over six meters, and uh, there's no supports and it bows. So that volume of water that now gets trapped and it weights down that uh, the, the the pipe from the, the discharge from the tray, all of a sudden just puts stress on the joint and that breaks, and now you've got all the water in the pipe and that that was in the tray. Other ones we've seen, Lorraine and Mayen will tell you, we've seen them that um, they slope the other way, you know, so they just become a waterfall, you know, and the outlet is like chasing water away from it rather than taking the water away from it. And it just goes back to common sense and logic. And I think that, you know, it's one of those things. How come we've always got the time to do things right the second time? Why couldn't we do it right the first time? I think that that principle, I used to get cut by my old man, you know, by that same principle. Why couldn't you have just done it right the first time? And I think that 
we need to apply that to look at it, apply the logic, and and really have, as you said, Lorraine, um, you know, the customer's interested in heart. We're the professionals. You know, we should be the ones that are conveying that that uh, message over to them, communicating to them, advising them, and in terms of what's their best interest. If they make that decision, I'm not interested. That's fine. But you've done your job, man. Yeah, I think uh, Steve. I'm going to go on to avoiding. Uh, will ask me the next question because I think it's pretty much linked in terms of what I, um, in terms of the timber supports, because it directly impacts on the geyser tray as well. So just to go on to add on to, to what Lorraine was saying, it's the same standard, 102.54 B2.1 also states that drip tray shall be placed on tie beams over a load-bearing wall and be supported by timber that complies with at least grade 5 of SANS 1783-2 and of size at least 114 by 50. And this is the important part, spaced not more than 500 apart. I think my topic here is not sufficient support under the geyser. And as Steve already mentioned some other standards, I'm also going to say that when we're doing auditing or when we're doing plumbing work, we don't just, if we're doing a geyser, for example, we don't just stick to 102.54. I think 102.54 makes reference of other standards. And in this case, the timber supports will be SANS 10400-L, which needs to be taken into account. And that's where... The, the timber sizing and the correct timber spacing and the truss strength is, 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 is stressed on. What we find is that guys don't realize that the, that the reason why the timber size is specced is to hold the weight of that geyser that's on that, uh, on, on that it's sitting on. And it's not just the geyser that we're talking about, uh, going back to the rings on the tray as well. I mean, the reason why it says 500 apart is that that tray, uh, the, geysers, the geyser feet sit well over 500 apart in terms of the 150, 200 degrees onwards. So that center support in that, uh, underneath that geyser tray is absolutely essential to avoid that tray buckling up in the center. Because when, you, when you're draining a geyser, that tray is pretty much, uh, if it's not flowing out fast enough, hence Steve Ayon said about pipe sizing. So imagine if you have an incorrect sized pipe, you've got a bow on the pipe which is sagging, and now you, you've got a very slow water outlet, and now you've got a tray that's filling up faster than what it can discharge the water. And, not and it's getting heavy. Sorry, not having a center support in that tray is going to buckle that tray, causing water to fall out before it even goes outside. And um, as Steve is, uh, and uh, different th things that we've seen is that sometimes the guys will then put in um, timber support. The support that was there originally was more than sufficient for what was needed. And then they will go a little bit less. Because um, in their mind, they need to you know stick to this certain sizing but there's a size that's already put there that was way, I mean, more than sufficient, even the way that the guy who had installed it before you had done it correctly. And a lot of guys have got to take that, you know, that aspect into their minds also. And also in terms of the discharge pipe, you know, make sure that, you know, your pipe is sloping outwards and also that it's connected correctly to the tray. Because what happens at some people, when you're connecting the tray, the discharge to the tray, they don't, they don't tighten that nut. And it's then when the water's got... It comes loose, and then the whole there's no purpose in all of this. You may have done all of that, but if you haven't secured your pipe to the tray correctly, the whole thing is uh, it's moot. The point is moot. The ceiling's full of water if, if that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's a drip. Yeah. And then one of the other ones that comes up, Willem, is where we go up into the roof, and and the incorrect uh, 
piping for the discharge from the tray has been utilized. You know, the, the, the plumbers have maybe used uh, some cable duct pipe and it, it will not be able to take the, the heat of the water in the event of it being uh, uh, hot water that, that, that is discharging into the tray and it bows. I mean, you some of those pipes you can actually take in your hand and just squeeze it and it'll be oval. So again, it, it's looking at the appropriate materials uh, we've seen some plumbers that would decide, well, they've only got a meter of pipe in their, their truck and they'll heat it up and do a, a, a homemade sort of uh, uh, joint. And so there's a lot of things up there that, you know, when you look at it, um, and, and the amazing thing is it's it's always the first time they've done it. I think Mahen and Lorraine will laugh, but it's always the first time you've done it when, when you've got up in the roof and you've found that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's that one call where you go, oh, geez, I haven't got you know an elbow <laughs> or I haven't got this. Just do that. And that's the one that's going to be audited and, and you're going to be found yeah. wanting it. You know? And yeah. that's the response. Ah, oh, it's the first time we've ever done this or whatever. But, yeah, it's just to be vigilant again. It goes back to looking at that job yeah. and, and sometimes if this was your house, you know, would you be doing it in that same manner? You know, if the risk was great to you in terms of damage to your, your property and everything else, um, yeah, just think about what it is that we're doing and, again, go back to what the standards say and what it means to be a professional. Just before we say goodbye, it's time to hit the brakes one last time. We'd like to encourage our audience to follow Articulated Plumber on Instagram and Facebook, not only to find out more about the Man in the Van podcast, but also to learn more about any exciting and interesting news that we may have. Our handle on both Instagram and Facebook is Articulated Plumber. So Steve, when it comes to vacuum breakers and and that the the Certainly, the standard says that vacuum breakers should be at a certain diameter. It it seems like it's found commonly that vacuum breakers exceed the the limits. What are those limits, and and what you know? Do you find that it's in many times exceeded that vacuum breakers are above what they should be? Uh, but let me say, yeah. Look, I mean, we find both. We find some that are you know greater than what the requirements of the standard are. And obviously those that are minimum. And, and there's a lot of aspects that or, or, or situations that create that. So let's just go and have a look at what the standard says. So SANS 102.54, 5.7. In closed systems and in valve-operated vented systems, vacuum control valves shall be installed on both the hot and cold water pipes to and from the heater to ensure that both lines and the water heater are vented and that siphonage is prevented. When installed at a horizontal distance of more than 700 millimeters from the outlet of a water heater, the vacuum, con- the vacuum control valve may be teed directly into the hot water supply line unless the manufacturer's installation instructions or the local authority bylaws require the vacuum breakers to be mounted on a 300 millimeter riser. So if you go into uh, the manufacturers, I mean, bearing in mind, we also have to apply the manufacturer's specifications in terms of what they have. And you will see that some will say on a 300 riser or 300 above the geyser. So there's there's a bit of a, a discrepancy on that. But I think in terms of the uh, the, the compliance auditor, when uh, we're conducting the auditors, one, I think the most common one would be that, you know, it's 300 above or on a 300 riser. So they would apply both of those principles. Uh, then we have height restrictions. You know, sometimes in blocks of flats, um, you can't get that 300 height, otherwise the geezer would be the bath, you know, because of the height and the positioning of everything else. So that's why the requirement in terms of teeing it directly into the line, uh, 700 millimeters away from the outlet, which then, you know, takes up that space and takes away from the fact that um, 
uh, it would still function correctly. What we have seen is plumbers interpreting that uh, incorrectly in terms of now putting a bend and then running it horizontal with the top of the geyser with a piece of pipe being 700 millimeters long. That in itself becomes a problem. The vacuum breaker has to be installed vertically. That's the requirement of the manufacturer. And uh, obviously, being put in that position, it's not going to function correctly. So vacuum breakers do become a challenge. And, and again, we, we go back to what the standards are there. And, and the, the, the most phenomenal thing, um, Willem, and I think Mahen and Lorraine will tell you, that if you were sitting in that roof and uh, you were looking at the geyser, there's actually a diagram on the geyser that actually shows you how these should be fitted. And it's amazing how many times we'll actually go up into the roof space and you'll have the plumber with you. And uh, it's like somebody's put the light on that he actually sees, oh, hold on, there's actually a diagram here. You know, so you don't even have to put it in the clipboard and take it with you. It's actually on the geezer. Um, so, so in terms of vacuum control valves, yes, certainly they are there. They're there to protect the geezer. They're there to protect it in terms of interruptions of water and to ensure that you can't actually uh, soften it on the cold water. So if the cold water was um, uh, isolated by the municipality that you, when you draw off or open a tap, that you're not actually softening the hot water from the cylinder out and into the cold water line, which would then expose the elements. And depending on the type of geezer, you either burn it out, some geezers that have linings, uh, would affect the linings, which would then affect the warranty. So very important to have those uh, installed in the appropriate manner. And again, if they are not done uh, and uh, in the appropriate manner, it will affect the actual warranty on the installation. goes back to the non-compliance notice. Uh, and as Mahen said earlier, if you cannot get those heights, there are ways in which to do it. But it's to just make sure that it's done in the appropriate manner and look at the diagrams on the geysers and just interpret that part where we say from 700 more from the outlet, meaning on that horizontal path we can go directly into the T. So it would be putting a T, uh, female center T, and uh, uh, putting the vacuum breaker directly into there. Lorraine, Mahan, you want to add something? Yeah, I think also on that 700 away, also taking into account that the vacuum breaker also still needs to be installed within the confines of the tray as well. So if it fails, water is going to fall into the tray and not... Uh, uh, what we have is that guys will go 700 away, especially on the hotline, because it moves away from the geyser, it's ending up directly above a ceiling and not uh, not uh, in the confines of the tray. So I think one of the things I would... Yeah, just a note. Yeah, just a note where it is, and and again, look at those things. I think um, you know sometimes you got one problem, then you create another mm -hmm. problem. But again, is to have a look at it. And I've seen it where the individual could have gone left or right, and he chose to go right. Yeah. And I think trying to get it and bearing in mind when a vacuum breaker goes, um, it's like a hose pipe in the roof. You know, so as much as you've got a tray there, uh, everything else is still going to get wet. But um, it's to just actually make sure that you've got the appropriate ones to make sure that they, they are compliant, uh, make sure they meet the standards. And, and again, there is so much information out there in terms of, of, of what to do. We've had some where they'll, um, again, the guys just are, are trying to do the right thing. Um, but it becomes a challenge. Space becomes a challenge uh, in terms of that installation. But there's no way in which you can't denote it or make sure that you've done it as best you can. Uh, I think we see that um, in terms of audits where you look at it and it is certainly not right, but it's safe. Um, and, and that's really what it boils down to. You know, if you can't get it right and you've advised the consumer, then get it safe. You know, that uh, you take it away from that and note it and put it in the notice, which we'll talk about later on.
Absolutely. Steve Mahen Lorraine, thank you so much for your time and your effort in joining us in studio today and having this discussion. I think that you've shared very valuable information with the audience. And I think it boils down to the fact that, you know, uh, you know, I or I certainly hope that it creates a little bit more awareness on the on the side of the plumbers and the people who actually do these installations and repairs. And that, you know, when they arrive on site, that even if they're not there to work on the drip tray and they're just there to replace a valve or a pipe for that matter, that they will keep an eye out on whatever other non-compliances there are and at least notify the consumer of those risks and, and, and you know, the non-compliances. Um, uh, thank you. Thank you guys for having tuned in or, or uh, for having joined me in the session. And uh, obviously, thank you for the audience for having tuned in. And uh, we hope that you carry out some very valuable information from the session. Now, that concludes part one of our conversation and our discussion about some of the most commonly made mistakes in plumbing work and some of the most common non-compliances found by auditors. Please do tune in to our next episode for part two of this conversation. Finally, it's time to switch off this engine. Cheerio. Man in the Van podcast, your regular audio drive time companion. 